Hello. We'll remember 2021 for many reasons. The Trump insurrection, the second year of Covid, the grave disappointment of COP26, maybe the Olympics. For me, it was the year I finally left the RSA and joined the NHS Confederation. But the Society kindly let me continue to present this podcast. And for Bridges to the Future, it's also been a fascinating year of great conversations with distinguished guests. So with Christmas approaching, producer Craig and I thought we'd offer you some advice on what we have found to be the most interesting books we've discussed this year. It was a hard choice, as everyone has had something interesting to say. But after much consideration, here's our six of the best Bridges of 2021. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm going to begin with people who are not only thinkers and writers, but actors, people who've shown courage and conviction in trying to make the world a better place. I could have chosen Nathan Law, a brave fighter for democracy in the face of Chinese oppression in Hong Kong, Or maybe Sir Kevin Collins, who resigned from his government post rather than legitimise an inadequate response to the impact of COVID on schoolchildren. But in the end, I plumped first for Eche Tamulkaran. Eche is a writer and activist whose work has seen her effectively exiled from her home of Turkey. Eche came on to Bridges to discuss her wonderful book, Together, Ten Choices for a Better Now. The book is built around a number of dichotomies, and I was particularly interested in Eche's preference for faith over hope. I think in the intersection point of fatalism and faith stands our need to produce meaning and our ability to believe in that meaning. And all those you know, big drives for humankind to survive stands upon that. And we you know, certainly create those meanings through narratives, through stories. We are living in an era where neither fatalism nor faith and even the need for meaning is considered as the pillar of human existence. So I'm looking at today's dominant system we call capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever, with all its tentacles in culture, in social life, in our understanding of ourselves. And I see that there is no story there. There is no story that produces a meaning. Who is the good man in our system? Who is the good? Who is the, you know, the moral man in our system? There is this lack of meaning which makes us ask about hope because a word with feathers, whereas we should be asking, why am I living for? But we are living in a very cynical age and cynicism is one of the pillars of this system and that doesn't allow us to speak about meaning. And that is one of the reasons I chose these words. These are the words that might sound naive to today's you know, dominant culture like love, faith, I don't know, the other words as well, dignity and so on. And I wanted to ask the question, why these words now sound, you know, naive to us or unnecessary? Yeah, we're living in a system that makes us think that the most crucial questions of humankind became unnecessary or irrelevant. Yeah, and the kind of interesting question here is, is it the relationship between faith and religious belief? Because we normally 
talk about faith in the context of of religion. And I'm not a believer. I often wish that I was, but yet I form a kind of distinction between good religion and bad religion. And and for me, again, good religion and good faith is based upon a willingness to accept the nature of the human condition and not to evade it. Francis Bufford is a wonderful novelist and, and writer. He he once wrote a really powerful defense of Christianity in which he described Christianity as the religion for people who know they're going to fuck everything up. <laughs> and I thought that was a wonderful idea that that was your belief, but that didn't interfere with your faith. The defeat, fallibility, our flaws don't take away from our need to have meaning and purpose. Whereas, as I say, the notion of hope can sometimes sound like it's a way of saying, that, well, no, we can strive for perfection. And without, and the danger of that notion of hope is it's once hope does not deliver, we just abandon it. Whereas faith is not something that you abandon if it's, if it's real. Yeah, I'm like obviously faith as the concept, it has been monopolized for quite a long time by religion. That's why we do not want to talk about it. It has the habit of getting out of hand. That's why... Progressive politics has been quite distant from this word, except for Latin Americans, which is another story. And I am not the first one who thought about the secular faith, faith in humankind, replacing the religious faith or being a good company to religious faith. It has been going on since Spinoza. But, you know, in this age, I think we have to think about it because of the perils of this century. One of the things that struck me lately was during the pandemic, people started posting footage of animals taking over the city centers when, during the lockdowns. I don't know if you remember. From Argentina, from you know India, from wherever, from Turkey, everybody started looking at the world and seeing this world without humans and in a very dangerous way, liking the non-existence of humans in that world. And I thought, okay, this is a very symbolic moment of humankind in 21st century. We do not believe in ourselves anymore. We do not like ourselves anymore. We are like certain that we fucked up everything. Especially the young generation, I think, believes that, that, you know, the generations before them could not do enough. And now they're, you know, left with this world, which is collapsing. So I am trying to make an argument against that. We are not that bad. We did not fuck everything, actually. We did not fuck up everything. We have to include humankind's aspirations to the history of humankind so that we can really, again, believe in humankind and start doing something for it and having faith in it. Ece Tamalkaran. One of my favourite aphorisms is that it's less hope that leads to action and more action that leads to hope. Our next Christmas reading list choice is We Are Bellingcat by Elliot Higgins, who built a global organisation and movement committed to discovering and exposing wrongdoing. Reading his book not only gave me more faith that bad actors could one day be held to account, but that perhaps, after all, some of the early hopes of internet journalism could be fulfilled. So I want to start with the story of the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down by Ukrainian separatists, rebels. What interested me in that story and what I'd like you to describe, Elliot, is, is the kind of sense of it being like an onion that you were peeling, that you were 
you were starting with the question, well, who shot down this plane? But you weren't satisfied with finding the answer to that. You then wanted to know, well, where had the missile launcher come from? You then wanted to know who were the commanding officers of the Russian brigade, which made that missile launcher available to the Ukrainians? And where did they fit in the overall hierarchy? So you you got deeper and deeper as you went along, didn't you? Yeah, it was an interesting investigation because Bellingcat had launched on July 14th, 2014, and three days later, MH17 was shot down. Before then, I was very much focused on Syria, but suddenly there was this huge event which was quite well documented. It was quite different as well from the context of like social media use in Syria because it was much more freer in eastern Ukraine for people to post stuff online. So there's a vast amount of information rather than with Syria where you have an incident and you're lucky to get like five videos from it and a few social media posts. Instead, you basically have the entire Ukrainian language internet to search through for information on this. And the first thing we, I started looking at, and then eventually a kind of informal team that kind of formed around it, was the route of the missile launcher, because there were videos and photographs published online that showed a book missile launcher on a low loader truck with a white cabin. And the first thing we did was geolocate, which is using satellite imagery and other reference material to figure out exactly where something was filmed or photographed these images. And because some of them were taken at times of days where there was a strong shadow, you could actually use, once you had the precise location of the camera, you could get the estimated time it was taken. And that created a route of this missile launcher traveling through separatist-held territory towards a site that a number of other sources online, including social media posts by locals, said there had been a missile launch from. And this was all quite early. And we also had a photograph that showed the smoke trail from what was believed to be the missile. And when we geolocated that and looked at the direction the smoke was coming from, it was exactly the same field. And then there was satellite imagery published that showed the same field. Before July 17th, it was just a normal field. And then afterwards, a corner of it had been plowed out and a local farmer said there had been a fire there. So we started you know, with something quite simple, like where were these photographs taken? But just from there, all these kind of other questions started coming up and all these other leads we could explore. Then, as we were doing this, people on Twitter were finding other videos of book missile launchers, some inside Russia, a couple of weeks before MH17 was shot down. So we looked at those videos and discovered that it was coming from the 53rd Air Defense Brigade in Kursk, and it was this big movement of missile launchers and support vehicles to the border with Russia and Ukraine. And we discovered one of those missile launchers by comparing damage and marks on the side of it matched to the missile launcher that was seen in Ukraine. So we had basically the missile launcher coming from the 53rd Air Defense Brigade a few weeks earlier and then appearing in Ukraine on July 17th, 2014, heading towards the launch site. Then we were able to use the social media profiles of the soldiers to start establishing everyone who was inside this convoy in Russia and getting their names and who they were and all kinds of personal details because they posted them on the internet. And it just kind of kept going from there. We just found more and more information. But it became very clear that this was a Russian missile launcher that had been sent over and was being used by the separatists as air defense. And it was crewed by a Russian crew and it was a Russian missile launcher. So it's kind of part of Russia's ongoing secret war in Ukraine. Yeah, and it occurred to me, Elliot, that at the early days of the internet, there was enormous excitement about the kind of notion that we would move from specialist professionals being the exclusive ones with access to knowledge and to spreading knowledge into, you know, the crowd. You know, we had people like Clay Shirky writing books about how it was all going to change. And then it never really 
happened like that. It turned out that people wanted to use social media for very different kinds of things and journalism's funding declined. But it's weird, isn't it, that eventually, decades after the early optimism, you're actually now doing it. You actually represent the kind of idealism that people had at the beginning about the possibility of an alliance, in your case, in the pursuit of truth between professional journalists and thousands of other people generating their own content. Yeah, it's an interesting time for, I think, the online world, because on one side, we do have kind of the work of Bellingcat and this growing open source investigation movement that's very much evidence-based and, you know, is focused on an accurate analysis. On the other hand, you have kind of growing communities around kind of conspiracy theories. So I think most famously at the moment is QAnon, but even looking at other kind of more bizarre movements like the Flat Earth movements, that, I mean, not saying that QAnon isn't bizarre, but like the Flat Earth movement, that's having a huge renaissance because the internet is great at bringing together like-minded people. It's also really great at effectively radicalizing people who are prone to kind of believing in conspiracy theories. And I think that's, so you kind of have the kind of counterfactual community, which I write about in my book as, you know, these kind of media and information ecosystems that kind of exist on the internet and then become completely detached from mainstream kind of thought, basically, and see themselves in opposition to that. Plus, you also have now the kind of work of open source investigators that is very much evidence-based and about analyzing material, creating this other community. Elliot Higgins. Bridges to the Future is more than anything an ideas podcast. Across the year, I've discussed many big thoughts, from Mariana Mazzucato on moonshots to Ian Leslie on the value of conflict to Melanie Challenger on getting acquainted with our animal selves. So it was a hard choice, but I picked first someone whose big idea is vitally relevant to our times. Tim Jackson. Tim's described his 2021 book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, as a kind of prequel for his classic, Prosperity Without Growth. His book contained many surprises, including his choice of heroes. The Bobby Kennedy story is really kind of obvious in a way because he, 50 years ago, 50-something years ago, had already foreseen the problems with the GDP and the problems with economic growth. And his speech from the University of Kansas in March of 1968 became a sort of poster speech for those of us who have been critiquing growth. And, and the fact that it was so long ago and so little notice had been taken of it, in some ways, is quite profound. But it's sort of you know, it always struck me in a way that it kicked off a sort of debate about statistics, which found its way into the OECD, for example, in their beyond GDP work. But when you go back to the original speech, you kind of want to know, you know, what was driving him, because it's a very poetic speech. It's a very profound speech. It has this philosophical element. It was a speech to, a, you know, a crowd of some thousands of people gathered together in a university basketball arena. 53 years ago. And you kind of want to know about the man. You want to know where that thinking came from. You want to know why he arrived at that point in that time. And and I had the good fortune at one stage to sit on a platform with Kerry Kennedy, one of his daughters, and talk to her about it, and followed up with his speechwriter from the time, Adam Valinsky, and began to sort of feel my way into this sense that the story of post-growth and thinking past our existing economic model has a long legacy. 
And I wanted to explore that legacy. I wanted to make real, if you like, the sense of a line of thought that is countercultural, if that's the right way to describe it, because it challenges the culture of capitalism, the culture of growth, the culture of consumerism, and it has a very long pedigree. And so it was to me partly about kind of anchoring thought in that way. And to take someone from the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, Wangari Matai, her example of the Greenbelt movement in Kenya, it was to me, it was a kind of a, a way of thinking about investment, which is a very capitalist concept in, in many ways. And we've learned both the upsides and the downsides of investment, particularly since the financial crisis, of course. And in Prosperity Without Growth, I had talked about investment as a commitment to the future. And you can make that argument. You can talk about all the reasons what for that and what it might mean in practice and how you reform capital markets and what you do with, with interest-bearing debt and so on. But actually, it's in a way story that kind of reaches through to people who don't spend their lives thinking about capital markets and don't particularly want to. And it's a story that reinforces that same idea that there's a legacy of ideas on which we can build support for a different kind of economics, a different kind of future. So there's lots of people that you might expect to be in a book like this. So Greta Thunberg appears a few times, Wangari Matai, you've talked about Bobby Kennedy, Lynn Margulis. But who's the person you choose to end up with? Emily Dickinson. Now, I say that partly because there's quite a lot of poetry in the book, and that's one of its charms. But why Emily Dickinson? You you know, you put her at the end for a reason. I don't know. She found herself there. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, it was, I think I say this somewhere at the beginning. I didn't ask, I didn't foresee these people. I didn't really invite them myself. I had the sense that they invited themselves into the book in various ways. And, and I mean, Emily Dickinson was you know, partly inspired by where do we go from here? How do we take hope for the future? And, and there's this wonderful, wonderful poem that I cite there about hope is the thing with feathers. And it became, you know, it became a way of drawing the book to its close. But it also had this, you know, extraordinary, there was a, this sort of extraordinary serendipities, coincidences, like the fact that basically Emily Dickinson spent most of her adult life locked down. She was in lockdown through choices, really, that she made. And we don't entirely understand them at the time. But we do know that she barely left the house for the last kind of decade or so of her life and spent it actually in very much the same sorts of conditions that we were at the time I was writing it, spending our lives and made of it you know, in the same way that we've tried to do through the pandemic as much as she could in the best ways that she could and to maintain her spirits and her sense of hope. And it drew me towards her writing in a different way, I suppose. It made me it made me understand some of the things that she was doing with language. And and it had some extraordinary resonances with some of the earlier bits of the book, which was, you know, her work has been compared to the work of Martin Heidegger, for example, who was the first professor under whom Hannah Arendt studied when she was in Germany. And, and they between them, they have Hannah Arendt is another character in the book, for those who don't know. And between them, they kind of constructed this idea, which somehow synthesized my own sense 
that ideas have a life of their own. They have a language of their own. They're propagated not through rational discourse always or calculus or the machinations of policy. They actually live in a space that we share because these ideas are shared, because language is shared, because language itself embodies spaces that we can achieve through poetry in ways that we can't achieve it through you know, academic papers published in peer-reviewed journals, for instance. And so she, she became, if you like, a sort of place to come back to the centrality of that idea that, that ideas matter and that poetic ideas matter and the poetic expression of ideas matters and that the poetic expression of ideas can allow us to deal with really difficult concepts like our own mortality and the loss of the people that we love and yet to find in that context this elusive characteristic of hope and she was you know it's it's funny getting into the sort of the minds and the work of people at that kind of depth you begin to you sort of begin to assimilate something of their thought worlds. And that process of assimilation was very important to what I was trying to do. Tim Jackson. The main challenge of presenting Bridges is the reading in preparation. It's usually a pleasure, but I have to admit that sometimes books which find a thousand ways to make the case for a single concept, well, they can test my patience. But once in a while... One of those books is so well-researched and written, but by the end, I'm convinced the author really is onto something. The example I've chosen from 2021 is The Status Game by Will Storr. I asked Will to explain how status can help to explain polarisation and extremism. There are certain beliefs that people go kind of crazy about. And those are beliefs kind of act as, in, in a way, as status symbols, that they're symbolic beliefs. And you know you're in the presence of a symbolic belief when you yourself are marking people up and down, depending on whether they believe in that belief or not, you know. And, and this would be a virtue game. You know, when we're playing virtue games, we're, we're defending the rules of the tribe. It's really the sacred rules of the tribe, the, the, the rules which, you know, symbolize our people and our, and our game. And you see it very commonly. And in, in, in the book, I tell the story of a, of a young woman called Miranda Dinder, who kind of fell into a Facebook anti-vax group. And, you know, she described very vividly this idea of, you know, when she joined this group being surrounded by really impressive mums that she thought were amazing. And there being this, this idea there that, that you know, that, that the more fervently you believe in your anti-vax beliefs, the more social kind of status you'd get, the more you'd get rewarded. And then she started going out into the world and arguing with her cousins, arguing with a doctor, coming back onto fake, running back onto Facebook, telling everybody what happened. And then she got more and more status. And that's how that status game worked is that the more fiercely you fought on behalf of your tribe or, you know, your status game, as I'd call it, the more status that you earned. And so you can see how this becomes a feedback loop where people start jostling to fight harder and harder and, to, and to, to believe in those sacred beliefs with more and more kind of stringency and perfection in a way. You know, I also tell the story of the, you know, the satanic panic in the 1980s, which was just an extraordinary event in, you know, that happened in my lifetime, which looking back on, you just can't believe it happened, but that dozens of people were locked away on the most extraordinary allegations that, you know, that, that were actually imprisoned for apparently being members of satanic child abuse cults and were doing things like 
like throwing babies at sharks and, you know, flying children from kindergartens to Mexico to be abused by Mexican soldiers, flying them back and then dropping them off at their parents' house that afternoon. Bizarre stories that were completely believed by people in the, in the 1980s in America. And as I say, people were actually imprisoned for, you know, on, on these charges. So you see how dangerous it is. And, you know, I've been writing about irrationality for some time now. And, you know, I kind of feel that this is, this is really the kind of ground zero of irrationality. When our status is at stake, we are really vulnerable to, you know, falling for irrational beliefs. And then there's another concept that I found really fascinating. I've been talking to people about it ever since I read the book, which is the, the relationship between status leaders and status followers. And the concept of cousins, which is the role that followers play in driving forward some of these kind of group pathologies that you've talked about. So tell us a bit more about this kind of concept of the cousins. Yeah, so, so, so this was another sort of big sort of light bulb moment for me when I read about this idea of the tyranny of the cousins. Not my phrase. I read it in the Christopher Bowen book. And, and he, he, he talks about how discipline is meted out in these pre-modern groups that, you know, of the kind that we, we evolved in. And he talks about how we weren't, and this was a, a huge surprise to me because we didn't live under the threat of the tyranny of leaders. We lived under the threat of the tyranny of the cousins. And, and what he meant by that was that there was rarely one sort of big man, dominant leader that would tell everybody what to do and everybody would obey that person. They were much more egalitarian and it was much more communitarian. And, and so the people who would feel were the people that he would call the cousins, they're not literal cousins, but they're this kind of elite caste, often, you know, unfortunately, of, of men that would kind of work to get a consensus in the tribe. And he, he tells a story of this of an unfortunate chap in, in the Gabusi tribe in, in Papua New Guinea who was accused of killing somebody through sorcery. And you know, the cousins kind of decided, had a conversation, decided that this individual was guilty of this charge. And, and, and so over the, over the next few days, gossip and moral outrage, you know, ran amok in the tribe and, and he ended up being killed and eaten. And so it was amazing to see the similarities with the story that he was telling about this Kabusi tribe to what you see on the, in these kind of cancel culture mobs on the internet. Because just like if Bohm's right in this idea, just like in, a, in, in those groups that we evolved in, there's nobody on the internet that's deciding we're going to mob up after this person. No one can stop them. No one can stop them. They just emerge. You know, they just emerge. And it's often elite figures on social media. You know, the, the cousins there that begin the accusations against somebody. And then this boiling atmosphere of, of accusation and gossip and moral outrage emerges and boils and boils and boils and it fires at the poor victim of the mob, the online mob, in a way that, that, that echoes really closely this account Bohm gives of the, of the Gabusi tribe. So, so yeah, this idea of that it's the cousins that are in charge in the groups we evolved. And I thought, for me personally, it was revelatory. Will Storr. One way to reduce polarisation is to engage fully with different people and different ideas. My last two Christmas list choices are conversations that had a strong personal impact. First, Otega Oagba. Her book, We Need to Talk About Money, related her life experiences as a young black woman, including her deep-seated fear of debt. I wanted to explore the differences in our perspectives. For example, was it complacent of me to think that the UK has become less sexist, less racist? Oh, I definitely think we've made progress if you look at where we were a generation ago. I mean, I obviously wasn't around a generation ago, but even if you just kind of look at accounts in historical context, I think there are genuinely fewer people who believe you know who have racist views or sexist views than there might have been a generation ago that's not to say that there aren't still a large number of those people but i think 
you know, standards and norms have changed and I would never, I certainly wouldn't want to go back to living in the 70s as, as a black woman. You know, I'd rather live in 2021. So that's clear evidence that progress has been made. But I think the issue is that sometimes people who don't suffer from those isms tend to overstate the extent to which they've disappeared or treated and also don't recognize that often they manifest themselves in far more subtle ways. So I might not have to worry about someone calling me the N-word when I walk down the street, you know, in the way that perhaps I might have had to worry about that 40, 50 years ago. But I also have to worry about smaller kind of microaggressions. And perhaps that's a luxury to be able to focus on, you know, someone making... I once had someone comment on my accent, essentially compliment my accent. And I just thought, you wouldn't have complimented my accent if I was white. Why, like, why not? My accent isn't particularly noteworthy. It's just a bog standard, quite, you know, London quite posh accent. And so maybe that's a luxury that I can worry about that when people a generation ago were worrying about being chased out, you know, because they strayed into the wrong area. But it's definitely not gone away. And there's still a lot of work to be done you enter into a kind of implicit agreement with the reader, which is that the reader will make of it what they will. So your book is only a book, as it were, when it's read. And the process of reading the book means that the reader takes ownership of it themselves. And I guess that's one of the things that's exciting about being a writer, a popular writer in the way that you are. So let me tell you about my experience as a reader, which was that I wondered whether I was allowed to say, yes, me too. I don't mean me too as in hashtag me too. But I was allowed to to say to you as the author, yes, I, I, I know what it's like to feel excluded. I know what it's like to feel like an underachiever. I, I've worried about money. I, I was bullied quite recently, you know, found myself in a kind of bullying and a relationship which made me miserable for a, a long time. I'm now I'm facing a bit of ageism, despite my incredible efforts to keep myself <laughs> young. And so, you know, I kind of, I want to ask you, take it, it, in some ways, this is a book that says to me, Matthew Taylor, look how different I am. I'm young. I'm black. I'm a woman. And look at the things I have to put up with. But at other points in the book, I went, oh, God, yeah, I know that feeling when you go into an organization, there's like a it feels like there's a clique that's running it. And, you know, you've got this awful choice, join the clique you don't like or be excluded. Is this a book where I'm allowed to go, oh, yes, I know what that feels like? Absolutely. I mean, and I find it gratifying that, you know, despite you having such a different identity to me, being older, being a different race, being male, I find it gratifying that there are elements of the book that you related to. And I would never want to gatekeep on who is or isn't allowed to relate to my experience. And actually, as I say, I find it gratifying because I wrote this from my perspective, but I felt confident, you know, the closer to my identity you are, whether it's being a woman or being the same race or being young, probably the more you relate to. But one of the key points I'm trying to make with the book is that almost everyone has a really complicated relationship with money. And it might be for different reasons and you might have different financial situations. But, you know, there's something I write in the book about feeling shame about money. And 
Whereas we understand when people feel shame about not having enough money, we find it more difficult to compute when people feel shame about having too much money. But that does occur. And that is still shame about money. And I'm always, I mean, not pleased because so many of the experiences in the book aren't necessarily positive, but I am pleased when I hear from people who have really different life experiences to me saying, well, actually, yeah, I really relate to that as well. And finally, and I think this guest might quite enjoy the irony of being on a Christmas list, an episode that didn't just change my mind, it changed my behaviour. Until I read the book Jews Don't Count, I really thought it was okay for me to tell Jewish jokes, including putting on a kind of caricature accent. David Bedil not only put me right, he not only made me think more deeply about why something is funny, and why other things are offensive. But he also told a wonderful joke of his own. I don't want to stop telling Jewish jokes. I mean, I say Jewish jokes, David. I don't mean anti-Semitic jokes. I mean, jokes which are funny and clever. Can I tell you another story? Obviously, you know, I, I am a storyteller, and so therefore I often think story is helpful. And again, I often tell stories about things that have immediately happened to me. So there is an old comedian. I'm not going to say his name, although, you know, I'm not in any way condemning him anyway. But there's an old comedian who at the moment is desperately trying to get hold of Frank Skinner, who is a very close friend of yours. And he's got my number, but he hasn't got Frank's, right? And he keeps on phoning me to say, can Frank give me a ring? And at the moment, Frank, not because he's got any problems with this guy, is just being Frankish about it. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it, whatever. Anyway, he phones me, this guy, a lot. And when he phones me, he often tells me jokes. And two days ago, he said, I'm going to tell you a Jewish joke. He's not Jewish. So how did just just tell me how does that make you feel when someone says that? Well, hang on, let me tell you the joke because oh. that's important. Oh. <laughs> does it depend on the joke? <laughs> it depends on the joke is absolutely what I'm trying to get to. So he told me this joke. I can tell you the joke. I'll try to summarise it because it went on for ages. He says there's a priest, an imam, and a rabbi talking about the miracles they themselves have experienced. And the priest says I was on a plane and the plane started to go down. I prayed to God and it righted itself in the air and everything was fine. And the imam says, well, I was on a boat. I was on a boat and it started to sink and I prayed to Allah and suddenly the boat swerved away from the iceberg and everything was fine. And the rabbi says, I was coming home from synagogue the other day on a Friday night on Shabbos carrying my wages and I fell over and the money went everywhere and I prayed to God and suddenly a hundred yards all around me, it was Wednesday. Right, meaning that he could pick it up on a Wednesday because you're not allowed to pick up stuff on a Shabbos. Indeed, you're not allowed to carry anything on a Shabbos, so technically he wouldn't have been carrying his wages, but let's not nitpick. Anyway, I laughed because I couldn't be bothered to say, yeah, that's anti-Semitic. I couldn't be bothered. That happens a lot, right? I also remember being on the Today programme about five years ago in a discussion about Jewish comedy with two other people who weren't Jewish who told their favourite Jewish jokes, both of which were equally Jews are money grabbers. I told this joke. Let me just tell you this joke. I told this joke, kind of deliberately told a different type of joke. Still about Jewish stereotypes, but different. There's a, an Englishman, a Frenchman, and a Jew sitting on a park bench. The Englishman says, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have beer. The Frenchman says, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have diabetes. And <laughs> my point about that is, it does indeed depend on the joke. Because it's not true that you can't tell Jewish jokes if you're non-Jewish. What you can't tell is anti-Semitic stereotype Jewish jokes. In my opinion, 
that one, right? I would accept that one. I mean, I think it's funnier coming from a Jew, but I accept and don't think it's a malign truth about Jews that they're a bit hypochondriac, right? And a bit worrying about that kind of stuff. And I think it's kind of affectionate. I don't think any joke that says Jews love money is that, however benignly you think you're saying it. Yeah, and the thing is that some jokes, which for me are Jewish jokes, I would find it hard to explain why. And it seems to me that it's partly because there is a kind of weird reasoning. I don't know. I mean, so I'm going to tell you a joke now, and you can, you know, Debbie Badil, and the game is going to be called Am I an Anti-Semite or not? I'm not doing that. I'm just interested. I'm genuinely interested in, I like a joke about Jacob's driving down the road, and a policeman comes out and says, Jacob, Jacob, stop the car. Your wife, she fell out of the car. 30 miles ago. And he says, thank God, I thought I'd gone deaf. <laughs> now, I, I don't know why that's... But that is, I mean, that's, you know what? That, that's I mean, it's sexist. Obviously, it's sexist as well, so I'm in deep trouble here. But I don't even know why that's Jewish. I think the reason it's Jewish is because it, there's a kind of... Some of the best tricks are kind of form of reasoning. And I, I sometimes think it's to do with the, the nature of the Jewish faith and the rules that one has to apply if one is a religious believer... And the kind of relationship between that and the real world, there's the, something there. I can never get to the heart of it, though. Well, actually, I wrote, I'll send you an article. I wrote a, an article about a book called The History of Jewish Comedy, which was so somebody said about that, about what exactly is the voice of Jewish comedy. And what you get in that joke, although it is a bit sexist, is this sort of very sort of down-to-earthness that I think is very important to Jewish comedy and that I think is part of what's attractive about it is I remember someone telling me this joke that weirdly even though you know judaism obviously is a religion it's unbelievably grounded in reality and someone told me this the shortest jewish joke ever which is a jewish mother goes and sees the dalai lama and says sheldon enough is enough (laughs) (laughs) and what i love about that joke is it's very very pathetic it's just completely stripping away any sense of the importance and sort of dignity of all these things that we think are important and dignified for a sort of earthy jewish motherness you know and i mean you know i this is a different argument than specifically about jews but i suppose i i know about it most about jews i've said many times that i don't think you can ever say you can't do a joke about X, Y, or Z. You have to look at the individual joke, what it targets, what its contexts are, to some extent who is saying it, and it will be different in every case. David Bedil. So, that's our selection of six of the best. But to be honest, it could just have easily been 26. Do check out our back catalogue on your podcast app. And when you've spoilt yourself silly over the festive season and it's time for a New Year's resolution or two, why not make one to become a regular listener to Bridges to the Future? Our next few episodes include great conversations with Maxine Bedard on the impact of fast fashion, Ed Glazer and David Coulter on the future of cities, and Siri Hutzvet on feminism, literature and motherhood. But until then, Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year.